Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 78th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of children in the COVID-19 pandemic with Alice Fothergill and Lori Peek. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. As of today, you can also catch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and Periscope as well. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. I want to take a moment here to thank my COVID Calls production team, Bucky Stanton and Amber Ferreira. Without their creative and dedicated work, I wouldn't be able to bring COVID calls out every day. So thanks, Amber, and thanks, Bucky, for all that you do. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. And please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I want to make a brief announcement about COVID calls. In light of the holiday coming up, we will take a few days off of recording, the first since we started in March. COVID calls will resume after today on Thursday, July 9th. If you're, if you're eager to hear more COVID calls, please check out the archive of past broadcasts on YouTube Live or podcasts on Podbean. As of today, July 1st, 2020, there are 10,538,577 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 10,360,882 reported yesterday. Of those, 2,658,324 are in the United States, and that's up from 2,606,211 yesterday. There are now a total of 127,681 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 126,493 deaths reported yesterday. The last time, just to give some context, uh, last time I had Lori Peak on COVID calls on April 9th, at that time there were 15,938 deaths in the United States. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that. Now, the headline is, Washoe's youngest COVID-19 victim died alone. His siblings could only say goodbye via Zoom. The author is Siban McAndrew. This appeared in the Reno Gazette Journal May 1st. Ian McElhaney asked his brother at least a dozen times what he wanted for his birthday. The 18-year-old who liked video games and dreamed of becoming a police officer was going to use the money he saved from doing yard work for a neighbor to buy Charles Coons the best birthday present. It didn't matter that it was all the money he had. Ian was always the kid who put everyone else first. I just kept telling him, I don't need anything. I just want to see you, Charles told Ian on Monday, April 20th. They had been quarantined away from each other amid the coronavirus pandemic. You're taking care of yourself, right? Charles asked. Ian sounded as if he had a stuffy nose. Charles, who was turning 29, was a little worried. Diagnosed with diabetes when he was nine, Ian struggled. He was in a coma for a week a few years ago after his blood sugar dropped too low. He also had seizures. 
But he always bounced back, always, Charles said. Ian insisted he was fine. Three days later, Ian's lungs would be taken over by the coronavirus. When paramedics arrived at his house, he wasn't breathing. He went into cardiac arrest. At the hospital, he tested positive for COVID-19. Ian's mom, Jenna McElhaney, died January 26th from head injuries in a suspected domestic violence attack in Virginia City. Ian wanted to make sure his younger brother, Aiden, 14, was okay. He worried about his older brother, Aaron, 20. He tried to comfort his sister, Nikki Holliday, who flew from Cincinnati to Virginia City to help bury their mother. And Charles flew from Los Angeles to stay and help take care of his brothers. Ian, who was described by his brothers as shy but brilliant, felt guilty about their mother's death. He felt responsible, of course. It wasn't all his fault. It wasn't at all his fault. But he wished he could have stopped things, Charles said. The five children of Jenna McElhaney looked to each other for support, vowing to get involved in domestic violence causes. It was us against the world, Charles said. The siblings agreed they would all be together for Christmas at older sister Nikki's house in Cincinnati. Christmas was special for their mom, and the first one after her death would be hard. My mom's death was hard, but she had a chance to live it, Nikki said. My brother didn't get that chance. None of us get to see him grow up. He doesn't get to fall in love and have a family. Nikki, who works in a veterans hospital, says she's frustrated that some aren't taking the coronavirus seriously. There's so much we don't know about the virus yet, she said. One day you're fine, and the next day you aren't. One day Ian was fine, and the next day he wasn't. His father, Brett McElhaney, said Ian didn't have any of the typical symptoms. No fever, he said. His symptoms seemed gastrointestinal and like diabetes. His father had no idea where he may have contracted the virus. Ian's younger brother had also tested positive. Ian's father had tested negative. Ian was excited to be joining Job Corps, a job training program for young adults, in May. He was studying to get his driver's license. He had gotten pretty good, his father said, of letting him practice driving a few times. And Ian was talking more and more about becoming a police officer. Charles thinks that was because Ian saw the good in law enforcement when he had medical emergencies and how police helped the family after their mother's death. I kept telling him he could do it, Nikki said. Don't let anything stop you. Aiden, Charles, and Aaron raced to the hospital as paramedics were trying to save their brother's life. They could only wait outside the hospital. No visitors were allowed in to prevent spread of the coronavirus. Nikki prayed for a miracle. Charles, Aaron, and Aiden, paralyzed in fear, didn't believe doctors when they said there was little chance Ian would survive. We just hoped they were wrong, Aaron said. If we could have been if we could have been there, none of us would have left his side, Charles said. We were scared he felt alone. We prayed our mom was there with him. They hope there's one takeaway from their brother's death. I hope people start taking this seriously, Charles said. You don't know what it's like to watch your brother die from a computer screen. I'd like to turn to our discussion today. I have two great guests, Lori Peake and Alice Fothergill. I'm so pleased that they could come and join COVID calls today. I'm going to introduce Alice. Alice Fothergill is professor of sociology at the University of Vermont. She studies disasters, children, inequality, and vulnerability. She and co-researcher Lori Peake conducted a longitudinal study on the experiences of children and youth in Hurricane Katrina, which resulted in the 2015 award-winning book, Children of Katrina. 
Professor Fothergill is an editor of Social Vulnerability to Disasters, First and Second Editions. Her book, Heads Above Water, Gender, Class, and Family in the Grand Forks Flood, examines women's experiences in the 1997 flood in Grand Forks, North Dakota. She has conducted research on volunteerism in the aftermath of the September 11 terror attacks in New York City, mother's challenges in academia, and the culture of child care centers in Ohio. In the aftermath of Tropical Storm Irene in Vermont in 2011, she took her University of Vermont Sociology of Disaster students into devastated Vermont communities to help with recovery efforts. In 2017, Professor Fothergill was a Fulbright Fellow in New Zealand examining disaster preparedness for child care centers. My second guest is Lori Peake. This is Lori's second visit to COVID calls. Lori is professor in the Department of Sociology and director of the Natural Hazards Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies vulnerable populations in disaster and is author of Behind the Backlash, Muslim Americans After 9-11. She's the co-editor of Displaced, Life in the Katrina Diaspora, and co-author of the aforementioned Children of Katrina. Behind the Backlash received the Distinguished Book Award from the Midwest Sociological Society and the Best Book Award from the American Sociological Association section on altruism, morality, and social solidarity. Children of Katrina received the Best Book Award from the American Sociological Association section on children and youth, and the Alfred and Betty McClung Best Book Award from the Association for Humanist Sociologists. Lori has conducted field investigations in the aftermath of 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the BP oil spill, Christchurch earthquakes, the Joplin tornado, Superstorm Sandy, and Hurricane Matthew. She is the principal investigator for the NSF-funded Converge facility, which is dedicated to improving research coordination and advancing the ethical conduct and scientific rigor of disaster research. She also leads the NSF-supported social science extreme events research and interdisciplinary science and engineering extreme events research networks. Alice and Lori, thank you so much for coming on COVID calls today. Thank you for having us, Scott. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here with you, Alice, and you, Scott. So what I'd like to do is, is starting out is ask you um, both the question I've been asking all my guests, which is where are you calling in from and how is the COVID-19 situation there? It's been dynamic in most states in these last couple of weeks. So we'd like to get an update from where you are. And then additionally, if you wouldn't mind telling us the situation that you've seen there around social protest in the aftermath of the George Floyd murders. Uh, Alice, could I start with you, please? Sure. So I'm in Williston, Vermont, which is a small town of about 9,000 people. And um, I would say Vermont has, um, has, is doing relatively well with COVID. Um, our cases are falling. Uh, our numbers are falling. We had about 1,200 cases and I believe 56 deaths. So um, we've done a pretty good job. We've had really good leadership from our legislature and our governor. I, I feel like people take it seriously. I see a lot of masks. Um, I, um, people, I think, are concerned. Um, but we've been, I think we've been lucky in a lot of ways. This summer, there... Um, Reopening state parks and some summer camps, reopening slow, um, but um, 
we're seeing things there. They want to do K through 12 in the fall. So they're working that direction. Um, in terms of thinking about the, the racial justice protests and the racial justice movement, I would say that it's still very um, active um, and it's taking many different forms. I feel like Vermonters really care about this. And there's been a lot of um, a lot of support for change, a lot of discussions. The um, so my town is about 20 minutes outside of Burlington, which is about 40,000 people. And they the Burlington City Council um, just voted to declare that racism is a public health issue. They rethought their budget. They're rethinking the police and resource officers and schools. There's been a lot of thoughtful discussion. Um, I know recently a lot of the schools near where I live um, put up uh, Black Lives Matter flags and they all had ceremonies and I attended the ceremonies with my kids and their friends. Um, and there seemed to be a lot of widespread support for that. Um, I think the one thing I wanted to mention, so, you know, not so we're not like a lot of big cities with thousands in the streets, but I do see, especially teens, there's a lot of, um, people speaking out on social media um, and feeling really, really strongly about it. So I feel like um, it's it's ongoing and it's taking different forms as we go, but it's it's very much an important topic to people here. Well, thanks for situating us a little bit there to understand where you're coming from. Lori, the same questions to you. Yeah, thank you. And um, so I am in Boulder, Colorado, and as of this week, we've had 1,365 confirmed cases in Boulder County, and we've had 71 deaths, and most of those deaths have been concentrated among older adults who are in group living facilities. I think one of the big trends or changes that has happened since I last talked to you, Scott, is that over these last couple of weeks, we've, as the slow reopening has begun in Colorado, we've started to see new outbreaks and new cases among younger adults in Boulder. And some of that has been related to social activities that have been taking place and also related to some of the Black Lives protest movement. Several people were at um protest and then tested positive. And so it's really sparked a lot of conversation in Boulder about how do we do both of these things? How do we battle the pandemic, but also fight for racial justice? And so to your second question to what's been happening here um, in Boulder proper, as well as in surrounding smaller communities like Lyons and Longmont, there have been several protests, many of them that have been ruthless. For those watching, it's on the front page of our paper, several teenagers who were um, leading several of these protests. So that has really been great. Um, in neighboring Denver, tens of thousands of people have taken to the streets following George Floyd's murder, but also there was a similar case in Denver um, of a young man, Elijah McLean, who died last year in police custody, was placed in a similarly um, was placed in a chokehold and then died while in custody. And so that's really reignited a lot of protest activity in the Denver metro area and here. And so the big question is, is this going to lead to the sorts of structural and policy change that we really need to see to move forward? But it's um, 
just really, really interesting to hear what you had to say, Alice, and I think a lot of parallels here in Colorado. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So um, we were going to get to COVID-19, certainly, but really, really thrilled to have you both on to talk about your work with Hurricane Katrina. And so I'd like to start, if I could, Alice, with you and um, give you a chance to talk about your work, you know, thinking back to Hurricane Katrina and, and you know, the ideas that you had, what you learned that then led to this multi-year project, Children of Katrina. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question. Um, it's it's a privilege to get to talk about this this study. Um, so I think there are a couple big things that we learned. Uh, I think one thing that Lori and I found was that disasters last a really long time in the lives of kids. So we had not anticipated that our study would be seven years, but we realized that um, there was no moment when the Gulf Coast had recovered and the children had recovered. And it really made us realize that the disaster, we really have to be paying attention for a long time because the way in which they unfold could last for a very long time. I think the second thing I would say that was really stood out to us and may not be surprising, but which was that structural disadvantages played the probably the most enormous role in how kids fared, whether they got out safely beforehand, whether they were there for the intensity of the storm, how displacement looked. So when we identified these trajectories um, after Katrina in the aftermath, really structural disadvantages played an enormous role on which trajectory children ended up on. Um, I think um, the, the other thing that really stood out to us is thinking about the ways in which kids are vulnerable and really understanding their vulnerability and really, really trying to understand their experiences um, and not um, and not, and really understanding why some kids are more vulnerable than others. But at the same time, we realized that kids had capacities and that we wanted to really pay attention to also the ways in which they were really capable actors and um, played an, an important role in their family's recovery and their community's recovery. So I, I think I'd start there mm -hmm. as some of the, you know, things that really stand out um, in terms of what we what we learned. Lori, I'd like to, to pick up with that and give you a chance to comment on that. And I'm particularly interested to know some of the methodological uh, challenges you faced as you put the study together. I mean, I know um, I don't have a fully comprehensive of knowledge of disaster sociology, but I do know that the history of the field the period of time under study, um, it can be intermittent over long periods of time, but there's not usually a continuity over a longer period of time. Um, and I don't know much about um, what kind of studies of children might have been out there for you both to think with, as you had this, I think, crucial insight that the disaster wasn't over, particularly in the lives of children. That insight fascinates me as a historian who's interested in these sort of very long premonitions and very long tales. So um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you how you came to those, how you designed the study and, and how you came to 
to think in this longer term continuity. Mm, absolutely. And thanks for asking that question. It fits really nicely with Alice's response to sort of follow on from what she said about from the outset, one of our core commitments in this research was learning directly from children, because while there has been decades of research that's available on children and disasters that's quite important, much of the scholarship that was out there, oftentimes it relied on adult report about children's health and well-being. And so asking a parent or asking a teacher or asking another caregiver about how a child was doing and so from the beginning, as sociologists, we were very much aware of and respected that work, but we also wanted to center children's narratives and stories in our work. And so to your question then, Scott, about what methodological challenges were then attached to that? And so one of them was that children are considered a quote unquote vulnerable population under the institutional review board requirements. And so of course, before we could ever launch the study, the first step was to ensure that we had IRB approval to do the work. And because children are categorized as a vulnerable population, that means that there are added protections that are oftentimes put in place. And so both of our IRBs, one of the things that we did in our IRB approval process is we always made sure that we had interviewed the, an adult in the child's life first so, or had some kind of contact with uh, an adult so that we could do what is sometimes called like a double approval process where we would both meet the adult, we would have interviewed the adult, but then we would receive approval from the adult to then be able to reach out to the child and do the interview. And I have to say our IRBs were incredibly supportive in terms of launching this study. In fact, initially while we were doing written consent forms, it was actually our IRBs that recommended we move to verbal consent because that would be more um, comfortable to our populations. So that was sort of the first hurdle was related to that and the quick response nature of the study. We were in, uh, we traveled to the Gulf Coast about five weeks after Hurricane Katrina made landfall. And so it was a very sort of rapid turnaround with launching this study, but then to keep it going over time, that was then where the, the shoe leather that comes with doing ethnography really came into play with how do you keep in touch with um, children and their families that were in highly mobile sort of settings. Many of our uh, initial interviewees we met in shelters after they had lost everything. And so that I, I don't want to go on too long with this one question, but there we write a, quite a lengthy methodological appendix that is in Children of Katrina where we talk about our methods, our ethical approach, how we were able to track the families over time and to keep in touch what reciprocity looked like in the context of this study, the different creative methods that we ended up using to make sure we were honoring children's voices, but also doing things that were age appropriate and so forth. So we write, we have many thousands of words at the end of the book that help to say more about our methods. And I'm just so thankful that you ask us about this because it's something that Alice and I took very seriously and we're constantly trying to adapt throughout the seven year course of this study to, to do our best work and to honor our participants in the right ways. 
Allison, I want to see if you wanted to add anything yeah. to that. And just a couple of things. I have a lot of questions about this, but one I wonder if you bring up is just the challenge of, um, you know, talking to somebody as they're they're growing. You know, you're talking to somebody intermittently about memories or their perceptions. And I guess maybe say a little bit more about how you structure Like, what did you want to know? Did, did you want to track how they were thinking and mem remembering Katrina? Or were you more interested in how their own growth was shaped? And if that's probably both. But I, I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about that because yeah. adults are hard enough, but they're <laughs> not changing yeah, yeah. They may be changing day by day. They're not supposed to. Children are supposed to change day by day. And so that's an extraordinary yeah. method problem. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think one of the first things that we realized was to truly understand their experience. We needed to spend a lot of time with them and we needed to really develop some trust and some rapport and spend a lot of time just hanging out um, every time we saw them. Um, I think we also realized that if we were going to truly understand their experience, we needed to look at all the spheres of their lives. So we really needed to make sure that we understood what was happening for that child at home with their family, at school, with teachers, um, at extracurricular, maybe at their church or the sports they played, um, and their emotional and physical health. And what was the neighborhood dynamic? So we realized early on that to really understand this child's life, we were really going to have to invest some time looking at all these different spheres of their lives. So I think examining all spheres was, was really key. Um, and I think the trust and rapport was really important. So we, we had, um, you know, hundreds of kids that we observed, but I think it's also important to realize that we had about 25 that we considered core, and then seven who were sort of our focal children. And I think it's important to realize that those relationships with that smaller group really developed over time. And then we could look forward to seeing them and they could look forward to seeing us. And they actually sort of got a handle on who we were. And, and in the beginning, there are a lot of people that descend on a disaster site. And so I think they realized like, oh, you're not, uh, you're not an insurance person and you're not a Red Cross person. And right you're, you're back, <laughs> you're here again, and you want to talk with them. So, but I think in addition to that, we, um, I think there yeah. are two other things I want to say is um, trying to make our time with them as sort of child centered as possible. So really thinking about what would make them comfortable and what would be kind of methods that would make them have some control. We, we loved our focus groups because that gave them the power of numbers. So we, um, by having all this power of being the, the adult and the researcher, they sort of got to have greater numbers and then they often offered each other support. So the focus group sort of had that benefit. Um, we tried to give them as, you know, um, Lori mentioned that we tried to do creative methods and we tried a couple different things that we thought would work. One was we gave them playing cards that had the spheres of their lives in pictures. So they held them and they decided which they would talk about first, how long they would talk about it. They controlled the interview, the pace, the tone. They could even discard a card if they didn't want to talk about that one. So we were constantly trying to figure out the ways to make mm -hmm. it child-centered. The last thing I wanted to mention about um, methods 
is um, how important I felt it was that we were a research team. Um, and I felt like not just logistically and financially was it beneficial, but um, interviewing families and people at shelters, it, um, it just was, um, it could be really upsetting or tiring or overwhelming. And it was just really nice to actually be a team and offer each other support. And I think people are starting to pay a little more attention to that about what it means to be a disaster researcher and and mm. and take all that in. And it was really nice. It was nice also just to uh, be working with Lori for so long, which was a pleasure. And also just to brainstorm with her, like, how how do you think they're doing? Like, what do you what do you think is going on with this family? Or um, it was nice to have be a team. But you, you think then there, there's been a sense of the, the researcher, the disaster researchers needing to exert sort of heroic proportions of self-control or, or to not be, um, to lay aside whatever kind of emotional impact the research might be having on them? I mean, that's, that's what it sounded to me. You're saying to have another person as part of this team for that as well? Yeah. I don't know. What would you say, Laurie? <laughs> I I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's such an interesting question, Scott, because one of my favorite interview books that I used to always assign in my qualitative methods class, one of the things that the author says is, you have to always remember that you're a researcher and you're a social scientist and you would never want to pass yourself off as if you're a counselor or a therapist. And also to remember that... Mm. Even if someone is sharing something really traumatic, that that is their story to share. And how do you, as you're absorbing oftentimes what is a really traumatic story, how do you do that in the most empathetic and compassionate way, but also always remembering that it is their story that they are honoring you by telling you that? And I think that's what um, working with Alice was that where that strength came from was oftentimes just being able to come together, as she said afterwards, even before every interview, we would really mm -hmm. talk about who's going to interview who this time. We would prepare together. And so we could really think through what the families might need that we were getting ready to see. And then afterwards, to be able to have one another to really both process analytically on the research side, but also emotionally about what we were seeing and hearing and so forth. And so there was true strength in, in being able to be together through this process. Thank you for sharing that because it's actually been a theme that's come up a lot in the COVID calls is that as we do interdisciplinary work and as we actually, and I'm thinking now even about the difference that may be between 2005 and 2020, I think we've seen a lot of changes. Um, Maybe they were creeping along and now they're really coming into view with the pandemic, but that we do have these interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary teams to coming together. So historians usually work solo. That's just the way we have. That's not the case anymore in disaster research. And I'm seeing coming together of teams, public health, sociology, anthropology. And I speak for the historians. We actually need to learn what you were just describing that you need to build into the research model time to do those kinds of what you're talking about, prepare yourself, feedback with another person, decompression. Um, those kinds of activities are not just something you 
kind of leave to chance, but you have to, if I'm hearing you right, you really have to build them in um, as time that you're going to spend in the, as, you, as you're doing the work. And I'm not sure, certainly I know historians, are, it's generally been thought, you know, you go to the archive, you do the archival work, you come out, it's, you're the same person going in and coming out. I'm not sure that's true even with the archive, honestly. And, and that might be things that happened 100 years ago, but I know that's not true with life with live subjects. I want to stay with this, um, Lori, and ask you if you would be willing to say a little bit about your connection with some of these research subjects, these people um, in your book, you're connected with them today. I've been thinking about that since COVID-19 started, about how they're doing and about how their lives may be shaped by COVID-19 and, and now I'm thinking how their lives may also be shaped by what's happened in Minneapolis. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, thank you for asking. And Scott, I think this question really picks up on something that Alice said at the outset about the importance of why we did this longitudinal study. And one of the things that we sort of in Children of Katrina with is this question about when does a disaster like Katrina even end in a child's life? Does it ever end? Because it is perhaps irrevocably altered the child's life in particular kinds of ways. And so one of the things in response to your question about sort of connecting Katrina to the current pandemic, to the, the anti-racism battle that is happening right now in our country, um, I think one of the things that Alice and I were really excited to share around all of that was as we launched this study in New Orleans, predominantly in New Orleans, but in other places after Katrina, one of the things that's really important to acknowledge is that there were already long-term ongoing struggles for racial justice, for environmental justice that were already happening. That was part of the context in which we entered after that storm. And one of the things we, we saw that was perhaps most promising and inspiring after Katrina was that it Katrina ignited all of this new movement activity and especially youth-led movement activity after the storm, trying to, again, battle for a more just recovery for children and youth and for a better future for children along the Gulf Coast and in New Orleans. And one of the groups that we write about briefly in the book, but spent some time with during our field work was um, Rethink New Orleans. And the Rethinkers is this sort of amazing group that is really centered around racial justice and liberation. And they have these sort of five key points of liberation that are focused on media and healthy food and healthcare access and education and criminal justice reform. And so the Rethinkers, they really were doing all of this work after Katrina. They've continued this work. And then now with the pandemic and with the racial justice protests really coming together, I think Rethink is this great example of a youth-led, youth-centered organization that has been doing that work all this time since Katrina and really already has that organizing platform for social change that is exactly what everybody's calling for right now. So I think at this moment, both in addition to the individual stories of the children who we profiled, I think Alice and I have been thinking a lot about that organizational and social and cultural context that can help lead to the types of structural change that, that the calls are being made for. 
so loudly right now, and I hope we're going to answer those calls. Thank you for that. I want to uh, ask you kind of a uh, kind of a personal question, I guess, if you don't mind sharing, Alice, with you first, because now we find ourselves in a situation where I hope you're going to do some similar kind of work that you did in 2005. How have you changed as a researcher since then, hmm. or as a person? <laughs> So that's such a good question. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I learned so much as a researcher by doing the Children of Katrina project with Lori. Um, it was an, um, uh, an enormous undertaking and one in which I'm really proud of and really learned so much. So I think um, as a researcher and as a person and as a social scientist, uh, um, I guess there are a couple of things that I, when I think about how I've changed in the 15 years since we started the project. Um, I, I, well, back sort of to the idea about, um, I think I really recognize how important social science research is on disasters. Um, when I started out getting my graduate degree, the field wasn't as large or diverse or respected as it is now. So there was definitely this feeling that, um, you that can be a you know one of your subfields or one of your areas of specialty, but it wasn't really um, mm. um, it wasn't really well known, and it wasn't um, it just kind of it took off. Um, and so I think I've realized um, now how I mean, and as disasters intensify and as we see climate change, oh. um, I think that there's there's an understanding of how valued the research is now. Um, and that's a real shift for me as a disaster sociologist seeing that happen. I think personally, I'm, I, I think, um, you know, when we started this project, we were assistant professors. Um, we had to worry about getting tenure and there was a lot of pressure on us from um, in our work. Um, and, uh, and so I, I'm in a different place now. Um, when we started the Katrina project, I, my kids were three and five. So as I was working on this project, I also, you know, raised two kids and my husband left business and went into teaching middle school. So I think that there was a lot of change and I, um, I learned a lot about raising kids and about children and, um, and about challenges kids face. And I also, I think I really um, started to, realize how um, important this field is and how important it is to do more public sociology or public social science or applied work. Mm -hmm. And once I could kind of get out of the, I must publish and peer reviewed and it needs to be single authored. And once I could kind of get past that, um, I, I, it, it's really nice to now be in a space where I can really think about like where, how am I going to make the most change with my work? What, what's actually meaningful to me at this point? Um, it's, it's just a different way to approach my work now. Um, and it's really, it's really great to be at this place. Um, I'm really excited about uh, starting this new project on children and um, the elderly in COVID Um so I'm, yeah, so I'm excited and I can approach that project in a different way, I think, now that I'm in a different place professionally and, and personally, now that my kids are grown up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we are human beings 
we're disaster researchers, but we're also going through our own lives at the same time. I don't know, Lori, any, would you be willing to talk a little bit about that for, for you? I mean, again, sort of thinking about applying some similar methods here, but 15 years later, mm-hmm. how are you coming at it differently, if at all? Yeah, um, Scott, thank you for allowing us to reflect on that. And I wanted to share a little fun fact about Alice and I, that Alice and I both got our PhDs in sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. And I like to tell people that I've spent my whole life following in Alice Fothergill's footsteps because she was also a research assistant at the Hazard Center. And then when she was finishing up her PhD, I became the new research assistant at the Hazard Center. And then that's we wrote a paper on poverty and disasters together when she was a new assistant professor and I was a graduate student. And then Katrina happened and we launched that to get that project together. And so the first thing I want to say in response to your question about how have I changed over these last 15 years, I want to say that Alice has played this enormous role in my life. And I, I loved working with her and I learned so much from her. And even though we had the same dissertation committee, went through the same graduate program, so we already knew a lot of the same things. I just being on the ground with her and getting to do this project. So that that changed me as a researcher and I it changed my whole life. And so that's one thing. Learning from these kids changed my whole life. Like I love those kids in that book. I love their families. Alice and I would get so excited to get down there and to see everybody and to catch up on how everybody was doing. And they changed my whole life. Um, and I, I feel so proud of the kids today. What the girl that we opened the book with, Sierra, she went on to get a master's degree in psychology, um, you know, and so it's like watching those kids grow up has been one of the greatest honors of my life. And so I want to say that. And then the third thing I want to say that changed me and in the most radical way was in two, I graduated in 2005. I'd read all the books you're supposed to read. And I said, I do vulnerable populations and all this. But until I got on the ground in the Gulf Coast, that is when all of that became so real for me. And, and it really sort of ignited in me that we are never going to reduce hazards losses until we reduce social and economic inequality and structural racism. Like 100%, that is what radicalized me and changed me dramatically from this project. Because when you see that so up close and you learn from people, structural racism is like this abstract thing until it is until you are confronted in a dramatic way with it, or at least it's abstract for a white woman like me. It was no longer abstract after Hurricane Katrina. And um, so, yeah, I think that was the third big thing I would say, how it changed me so much. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Alice Father Gill and Lori Peak, and you can get your questions in using the YouTube live chat. You can just put them right there in the chat or you can put them up on Twitter if you want to. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. Sometimes people even like to email me questions and that's fine too. You can email them to sgk23 at drexel.edu to get in on the conversation. So we've been talking about children of Katrina and research methods and now I think we should shift over and talk about COVID-19. So um, I guess I'd like to start maybe, Alice, if I could ask you um, just as you think about this moment, um, similarities and differences 
to Hurricane Katrina as you're thinking about COVID-19? Can you start us out in that direction as we start to get our minds around what you're thinking about going into this project? Yeah, yeah. So I have been thinking about this a lot. And um, I mean, I think the the first thing I'd like to say is that um, in both cases, uh, children's lives are disrupted um, and disrupted in many ways um, and across all the spheres of their lives. And, and I think we can really think about the ways in which uh, in Katrina and in COVID, what kids, their home life, their school, their friends, family, their health, we can really, their extracurricular, we can really see that that disruption was in all the spheres of their lives. I, I think one of the things that um, when people think about the kids of Katrina, they think of them evacuating and being displaced with their family. Um, and so, but there is, um, in both cases, there really is separation from really important people in their lives. So I think the separation from key family members and other key members of their life is also a a big similarity. Um, and so there's that isolation and that separation. Um, and then I think the other thing that's really similar is getting back to this idea is that there was, um, the variation by income and race. So in both cases, we see disasters that did not affect kids all equally. And that it jumps out in both disasters and it's very clear and and maybe the circumstances are different, but that's very, very clear in both disasters. So just those kind of jump out as the first things in terms of similarities. I think the biggest difference for me that I've been observing these last couple months is that the scope of it. So when one of the big things with Children of Katrina is, so it was regional, it was enormous, but it was regional and it was not global. And so one of the big things was moving kids to a place where they could settle in, get sort of um, into a routine and some structure and get enrolled in school. Getting enrolled in school was just such an important thing wherever they were. If they were at a mass shelter, the school bus would arrive. So this that was a very key part of getting them back on a sort of stable trajectory. And that has been a key difference. You cannot leave where you are now and go to another community and go back to school. So I think that has been one of the key things that has jumped out is that um, there is no moving to another place where you might be able to resume some aspect of your of your daily life that kids need. So since you mentioned the schooling, um, and many of us parents, but not only parents, people who you know think about children or connect with children, um, are obviously seeing the enormous stress of trying to cope with distance yeah. learning. Um, and so, I mean, could you give me a first take on that, just from your what you just said? It's underlining the importance of being in school as a stabilizing factor, a normalizing factor, as a yeah. coping mechanism. I guess going through disaster. Yeah. And now we've had the inverse of that. What are, what are you, how are you even framing that? I mean, how will you measure the impact of that? Yeah. So, you know, the Academy, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a statement, I believe it was yesterday, about that kids should go back to school. Um, and it's a really strong statement. And it's saying kids to go back to school. So, I mean, there's a lot to work out, but the goal should be that they are back physically in that space. 
Um, and so I think that it's even hard for us to wrap our heads around how important it is for kids to be back in school. And I, I actually, I was surprised to see that strong statement. I know that, um, you know, and a lot of, there was pushback immediately from teachers who are older saying that they're nervous about, but that that goal is really important. I think um, what we, um, what we saw, I mean, the, there's the, there's the learning and that's really important. And we actually saw the, the consequences of kids losing out on school. And we have some amazingly bright kids in our study who lost school and then were never able to sort of catch back up. Um, or, and so then we saw a lot of kids who ended up dropping out, um, who had not been on, who had been on a path to complete, um, high school. Mm. So there, the, the getting back, even with a few months. Yeah. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but even with a few months disruption, you see this sort of, yes, we did see that. And, um, and granted there were other circumstances happening at the same time. So there was a lot happening in the child's life and there was, you know, um, housing insecurity and hunger and um, maybe violence in the neighborhood. So there were all sorts of factors, but we did see a lot of kids who without Katrina would have been on a different educational trajectory and would have um, finished. We we did see for a lot of the kids um, who were in school and like school and doing well, is what happened is it seems like it was a more fragile sort of existence than they had realized. And that once it started unraveling, it was very quick to unravel. And, um, and m most, a lot of kids said when they got enrolled in another school, they, they couldn't focus. They were really having trouble keeping up. And a lot of them had been really good students. Uh, the, the, the one thing I want to say that I think we learned that I think is really important, and you've probably both heard this many times before, but School is also a connection to adults outside of your family. And those adults are so important. And um, and the kids need them. Um, and they need those connections with other adults outside their family. So I think school serves so many different purposes. I sort of realize that, that you know, that uh, AAP's statement is, is getting at all of that. Um, all of these things that kids need through actually being together physically in a space uh, at school. Lori, can we um, go a little further with that, bring in some of the other concerns? What I'm hearing from Alice is that you know, start, start with school, and in fact, that's connection kind of in every direction. But I've been thinking a lot about, in this time, healthcare access for children, what Alice just pointed to um, being in the home um, too much and what health impacts and, and maybe opening to abuse um, in, in some instances. So um, what can you tell us about how those factors might come into a study like this? Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the interesting things that Alice and I always like to really raise when it comes to children and youth or those under the age of 18 in our country is that they make up nearly one quarter of our population. And so children and youth are this incredibly important portion of our population, but oftentimes their needs 
are overlooked. They're not in the room when important decisions are being made about their lives, about access to school, about access to healthcare, about how different things are going to unfold for them in their present and in their future. And so um, I just thank you so much, Scott, for giving us the space to talk about these issues, both in relation to Katrina, but also, of course, in relation to the ongoing pandemic. And so to healthcare access in particular, this is an enormous concern because healthy children cannot learn. If they are, as Alice just alluded to, if children are traumatized, we know there's just reams of studies that so ch children don't remember. They're not, when they are under conditions of trauma and stress, and so this is an enormous concern, the high levels of stress, both among children, but also among the adults in their lives. Then you layer on top of that, that some 4 million children in this country don't have access to healthcare. And that number shot up by 5.5% in 2018. It's on the, it could be on the rise even more. And so, you know, all of these things are interconnected, right? Like exactly what Alice is saying that, for a children to learn, for a child to learn, which is their number one job, for a child to learn, they need to have that stable housing and neighborhood context. They need to have be healthy, have access to healthy food, to have preventative health care. They need to have um, supportive adults and supportive peers in their lives. And we know that millions of children in this country do not have access to those things during non-disaster times, let alone during a moment of disaster. And so I think that's one of um, just the enduring messages of Children of Katrina. And Alice has raised this twice during the call now about those who are in already vulnerable or disadvantaged situations. They always suffer first and worst in disaster. And so that's where when we think about education access, one study came out and said some 40% of children in Los Angeles schools had not logged on to the online platform, hadn't even logged on in one of our nation's largest school districts. And what is that going to mean for their long-term health, well-being, and ability to learn? And so this is an enormous concern for us right now is the school as anchor, the home as anchor, the neighborhood as anchor, the healthcare system as anchor, and how all those things fit together to ensure that children across all racial groups, across all economic groups, have a fighting chance to come out of this pandemic um, in, a, in a better state and not in a far worse state. And that's going to take a significant, significant investment. I do notice, I mean, so first of all, social media. And I know there's a lot of concern about too much social media with children at the same time. I think I'm curious about the ways that that does help children maintain social um, connectivity with uh, extended family, but also with friend groups and maybe even with other teens, particularly that they've never met. And I'm thinking about TikTok and other sorts of things that didn't exist in 2005 that give them outlets now that they may not have had before. That's one thing um, that I'm thinking about. The other, I'm, I'm thinking of Greta. I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg, and I'm thinking of the children's and the teens' marches of last year, picking up really about this time last year, the climate strike, the extraordinary capacity for organization, for we're not going to take this anymore, and you older generation are moving too slow, as, and as Greta 
got up on that stage at the UN and said, you know, I, I cannot believe that you older people know what you're doing. Otherwise, I would think you're evil and I refuse to think that about you. There is a sort of a vitality and a clarity to thinking in an organization of teens that I'm seeing now that I haven't seen. Certainly, I'm a Gen Xer. We didn't have that. And and maybe that it comes in fits and starts, but it almost feels like a movement of youth in America today and, and globally. And I, I don't know how you begin to even come up with variables for something like that. That's probably why I'm a historian and not a, a sociologist. But I wonder how you how you think about that and how you think about teens maybe are different today than they were in 2005. And I don't know who, if either of you want to, if that resonates with anything you've talked about or either of you want to pick that up. Alice, I don't know, or Lori. Sure, I'll start. Um, so, I mean, I think what you just described just it makes me feel so hopeful. Um, I, I agree. I feel like this is there is um, a resolve and a clarity and a, a movement. Um, yet at the same time, I think that we saw a lot of that in 2005 with some of the the kids mm -hmm. that we met. I was thinking about um, uh, uh, a meeting that teenagers organized when the police were being really um, using excessive force in their schools. And they decided that they were going to have their own town hall with the police chief and they organized it. And we were just in awe. And indeed, they had a town hall and said, this is not OK. We This is excessive force in our schools. We've been through a lot. Yes, there are discipline problems. But my God, we just went through Hurricane Katrina. Like, let's figure this out together. And um, so so um, so. I, I don't know if that helps with your question at all, but it just is what I was thinking as you were asking yeah. that question is that, yes, I, I do think that something, I feel that sort of hopefulness about things I'm witnessing now, but I also saw that resolve and that um, those those students doing the, that organizing. I do think social media, I mean, you have hit on something important and I don't know how exactly we would are going to research this, but I have a feeling that after this, we are going to learn a lot about the ways in which we are mm -hmm. connecting um, during physical isolation and social connection. So I have a feeling that there are literally thousands of social scientists studying COVID, and I think we're going to really have a sense of how much this worked. I certainly have heard anecdotally that children connecting with grandparents through the internet um, has been really, really powerful and helpful. Um, but I think we also, I mean, we also have to be mindful of thinking about who's not able to connect, um, the issue of um, who has that internet connection. And it's interesting because we live, in, you know, I'm in a rural state and we talk a lot about, uh, you know, and especially watching teachers here trying to figure out how to connect with students who don't have good internet access in really rural parts of the state. But it's actually kids, low income kids in cities who really are cut off. And so it's interesting because I think that's always been framed of if we can just do more infrastructure in the rural areas. But actually, you know, we have to think about the kids whose families can't afford it and they're in cities. So the, the infrastructure is there, but we we can change that like that's um, they are. They could also be more connected. Um, but I think, yes, I think it's. um it, it, the social media is a powerful tool for them to connect. And I think there could possibly be good and bad with it. But um, 
I'm sure Lori has more to add to this. I'll just really quickly, um, yeah, Scott, thanks for asking that. And Alice, I agree with everything you said. I guess the one thing I'd add is it was amazing after Katrina and amazing to think back how much social media has changed in 15 years that in Katrina, it was MySpace that people remember that, uh, MySpace that young people used to connect. And it was absolutely integral. Some of the children who we met after Katrina, they told us that they thought they literally thought that all of their friends were dead or they just didn't know where they were until they were able to reconnect through social media. Because remember, oftentimes phones weren't working for long periods of time after Katrina. And so children setting up MySpace pages, both for themselves, but also for their adults in their lives, sometimes became, sometimes became very important to part of their recovery process so they could reconnect to the peers in their lives. Um, right now at this moment, uh, it is exactly what Alice said, sort of that double-edged sword, always asking who has access, what's the meaning of the access that they're having, how is that working, and so forth. And so I think those are some really important questions to explore. Um, I just want to say, Scott, in relation to your question about the youth activism around the climate march around not forgetting that tens of thousands of youth had also been marching around gun violence. I mean, youth have been organizing around so many major social issues now with the racial justice and anti-racism protests that have sprung up across the United States. That I think it's this question of youth are helping to lead the way forward. Are our systems and structures going to be able to adapt and respond in the ways to the demands that they are rightfully making to move us towards a more just and equitable future? Are our systems and structures and the people in power going to respond to the demands that are being made of them so that uh, children do have a chance to live in a more sustainable world instead of one that is just marked by ever more disaster? I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Lori Peake and Alice Fothergill. We are almost up on time. I very selfishly would like to talk a little bit longer if that's okay with my guests. Okay, they're nodding. Um, so um, I actually, because I want to know a little bit more about the, the work you're thinking about doing and I and I forgot to ask you before, because you so nicely laid out how you approached the issue with Katrina and you talked about the necessity um, logistically of, of getting also to know parents and extended families and that it was children of Katrina, but it's really sort of families of, of Katrina. I presume you have to take a similar approach right now. And Alice, you've also mentioned that um, you're thinking about older uh, victims as well at this time. We're thinking about elders at this time. So talk to us a little bit about about that, about how you're how you're even thinking of making those connections. Um, will you go about it the way you did it in 2005? As you said, this is not one region or one city. This is global. I don't even know how you begin to think about bounding this study. Um, I don't expect you to give us the full uh, recipe for your secret social science sauce at this time. But can you take us a little bit into that? Because I am particularly interested in how you're going to talk to adults and older adults. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to go to first, Laurie? 
So yeah, um, do you mind, Alice? Yeah, no, I don't mind at all. So I actually, um, the the study that I'm um, about to begin is actually. Um, I'm not the leader on the project. It's actually a, a social scientist at the University of Ottawa in Canada named um, Professor Christine Gibb. And she um, came up with, she designed the project. And I, I sort of asked her if she could invite me to be part of it. And um, I really liked what she was trying to do. So she wanted to start with journaling. And she really wanted it to be centered with the seniors and the children and really hear their voices and learn about their day-to-day experiences. Um, so the, the, for the children, permission would, um, we would ask permission of the parents, but it would really start with something that the child was creating. Um, and there would be prompts. So right now, just um, waiting for approval from the human subjects board. So I can't actually collect what's, um, but I think a lot of people, and actually I saw some interesting stuff recently, a, a historians sort of making the plea to people, write things down right now. Just everyone start writing things down. This is really important. And one of the things I've been looking at is some diaries um, that people kept in the Spanish flu in 1918 and realizing that the parallels of how interesting those were. And I think that the idea of diaries or journals is such a great place to start. So that is sort of the starting point. In a year, it may become more interviews. It could even be sort of workshops in schools if kids are back in schools. But the starting place is journaling. And I really liked that as a starting place. And that's a different approach than Laurie and I took. Um, and I think that um, I, I I think that would be, a, I think it's a really good place to start. And um, it's, um, it, I, I, I felt a little bit like, um, I'm sorry that I couldn't get the ball rolling and the approval earlier. Um, and I felt at one point, mm-hmm. oh no, the, that period, maybe I've missed this really important period. But at the same time, this is going to unfold for a while. And I think that children's experiences in the next six months or nine months are also going to be really, really important. That's really, you know, thinking about that that temporal aspect. I mean, I've had that that same exact feeling. I didn't quite put it together the way you did, that there was a sort of a missed, maybe a missed opportunity, but but now as we move, particularly thinking about this schools issue mm-hmm. and into the fall, there will be children writing about this experience of coming back to school, but probably not really coming back to some version of school. Right. It's going to generate, it's going to be so generative, I think, mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. of thinking and, re- and reflection. Mm-hmm. I've had, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, and one thing that we noticed with, Um, Katrina is it's really helpful if teachers can be given tools, if they can actually be trained or be given a curriculum. Uh, I felt, you know, we just, our hearts went out to these teachers who were back in the classroom with given nothing to know how to move forward. I think one thing that worries us now is that we saw the benefits of um, a lot of sort of creative arts, theater, music, and a lot of now that I, budgets are unfolding, and these are the things that are going to be cut. So, um, because it would be really nice for kids to be able to sort of process these things with a lot of the creative arts, um, and also for teachers to be given some idea of how, so if kids are going to reflect, 
I mean, that's actually tricky. So we have to be mindful that some kids in the classroom might have lost a family member. Um, and so their approach to that activity will be very different and will have different needs um, in that in those circumstances. That's a, I think that's a lot for a teacher to figure out how to navigate that. Um, I, I, if I was teaching young children, I'd really want some help to figure out how, how do I, kids need to talk, but they don't all want to talk about, like, they can't all talk every day at the same time. It's, so I, I think it's going to be tricky, but I think it's important. Interesting. I wonder, um, also just to ask you a little bit more about this, the degree to, so I'm teaching a class this summer about COVID-19 and, and, uh, mm -hmm. we're doing an oral history project and this is college students, but, um, yeah. For the first time, I'm actually, so I always do oral history projects with students, but um, strangely in this distance, but the facilitation with Zoom is much easier. So there's actually the technological capacity to do more with interview mm. than had previously been. Oftentimes you give such an, an assignment and you you can get tripped up with very basic things. When should I do it? How do I find a person? How do we, those right. kinds of things. We've become habituated to always to being in this space where we can record at any time and nobody thinks anything of it. I wonder if that will somehow be a benefit to, mm -hmm. to your project. Yeah. Yeah. I think right now I'm just hung up in the IRB land because of uh, doing know. all this safely. <laughs> And, and making sure that there's yeah. no breach of confidentiality and, um, you know, the kids can't email me their journals. So, you know, thinking yeah. through, but I think you're right. I think that it could open up um, new ways to um, yeah. do sort of oral histories or journals. I think I think there are opportunities there for sure, for sure. Tip, typical historian, I have you zoomed right past the IRB into <laughs> into the special carve outs that historians have for oral history but i'm thankful that you're slowing us down and talking about the attentiveness to to the, the irb and and those kind of protocols at this time i want to get one more um question in and, and it's for both of you but laura i'm going to ask you you first so not everybody can do um longitudinal social science studies um with children uh, around disaster, what are some of the other ways that you think right now people can uh, advance the rights of children? What are some of the, and I guess connected with that, I'm sort of curious if you think there are other, what organizations are doing this right? What other cultures are doing this right? Where can we look to for models? Because I do worry, and we've said it in many different ways today, you know, children and the United States today bear the brunt of societal inequality in ways that's not sustainable, acceptable, democratic, or or moral. But I know there must be people approaching it in ways we would like to aspire to. Can you take us into some of some of that so we can think positively? Yes. So <laughs> I'm going to start with thank you for asking that, and I'm going to start with something that's actually not so positive about our nation right now, which is. The United Nations has a declaration on the rights of the child, which every country around the world has signed on to except for the United States. And so one thing that I think is really, really important is committing to the rights of children, the human rights of 
children. And so um, right now we may not have done that on a global stage, but I think in the better news that you asked for, that there are many things that we can do to advance the rights of children. So one is to listen to children and youth who are, if not granted particular human rights or civil rights, are demanding them right now. And so I think number one, listening to those child-led groups and organizations, um, and not dismissing what they're doing because this is very serious work that many of these child-led groups are doing around in the United States and globally. And so number one, listening to those children, listening to um, what it is, the vision that they are putting forth for a more just and sustainable world. I think the second thing that we can do living in a democratic nation is to hold elected officials accountable to ask them about the policies that they are setting forth around children and youth, their health, their education, their well-being, their potential for wealth generation into the, their environmental rights and so forth. And so I think really paying attention there is incredibly important. And then I would say, I know you started this question with not everybody can do longitudinal social science research on this. And we fully acknowledge that. But right now, there are countless questions to be asked. There is work that needs to be done. We need to hear more from children. We need to ask more questions about how children and their caregivers are doing and their teachers in this context to really pay attention um, to them in this pandemic. And so whatever way we can shine that light on children's health and well-being during this moment, I think it's critically important. And it's important because while the pandemic has moved center stage for obvious reasons, one of the things that I'm deeply concerned about is when children return to schools in the fall, we know that many of those schools are not safe. <laughs> They're not safe to the other natural hazards that children face and that the, the adults within those systems face. And so I think thinking about this really holistically and how can we ensure that children have the best chance for the best lives that they can lead and what kind of policy and investment decisions would we make if we centered children in those decisions in new and different kinds of ways. Thank you for that, Lori. That first part, what you mentioned, I want to make sure that we had this right, the UN Declaration of the Rights of the Child. That sounds like something that people listening and watching could actually pick up a phone and call a senator if they wanted to be heard about that. Am I right about that? Yeah, you are correct. Alice, would you recommend that to our beloved listeners? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is amazing that we have not uh, ratified it. I mean, I think Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, I mean, no one has pushed it through. Madeleine Albright did sign it. But um, we've never we haven't pushed it through. I mean, I think there'll there'll be opposition to it, um, but it's um, it is it's a really important document, and it's a global leaders have have basically made a commitment to the world's children that they deserve these lives of dignity to have safe, um, you know, and um, and and be able to grow and learn and develop um, and. It is a little, it is um, surprising and um, and alarming that we are not part of it. Um, so yes, that that is definitely something that 
one could do <laughs> is advocate for for that because um, it's it is a, a truly um, historic uh, and global document. For Anything sure. else, Alice? We're we're yeah. we're up on time here. I'll give you the last word. Anything <laughs> okay. else as we think about organizations yeah. to look to other countries? Either you gave a beautiful example, though, also of being attentive to children in history. Mm -hmm. um, your example from 1918 pandemic, and those materials are out there for people to people to yeah. look at. And you can I feel empathy gonna... for children who are long gone, and that's good yeah. too. I think it's useful. But I've just, just yeah. as we close, some final thoughts from you on that. So I was just going to mention, I mean, um, I think because this is global, we can, this is a moment where we can learn from other countries. Um, and so I think actually this would be a really, it's really important for us to say, okay, so we, we can learn from each other. Um, and Italy just uh, did a study, a national study, and um, they did a survey and found they started to document the kinds of things kids are going through there. And it's a um, sleep mm. disturbances and anxiety and developmental regression, not surprises, but it's really important. And since they were sort of first, it's actually really important that we see, oh, what, what are they seeing? Mm. What age groups? And so this is a time to collaborate and have people say, oh, we can really learn from each other. We can benefit from um, the research done in other countries because we're all faced with it. So it's the one time where this global nature is, is in our we should use it to our advantage to learn from each other. Um, and even, you know, the Italian study um, is uh, small, but it's really important. And I think that that's the kind of thing we could start paying attention to. I want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls, and COVID Calls is going to go on a brief hiatus after this talk. We'll re rejoin COVID Calls on Thursday, July 9th. If during this week you want to use this time to catch up on the 77 previous uh, conversations that I've had with brilliant and amazing researchers and journalists, please do check those out on Podbean or anywhere that you get podcasts, and you can also check those out on YouTube Live on the YouTube live channel, COVID Calls. Lori Peake and Alice Fothergill, an enlightening hour and a quarter today. Thank you so much for what you do and for coming on to have this conversation today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for the way you started the call. That was very moving with the obituary that you read. And just thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.